Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hi, everybody. It's Doc from the John Freaking Pod, and I want to let you know about our new website on WordPress. Take a few minutes and check it out. You'll be able to find pictures of the pod's guests, links to the podcast and social media accounts, ways to support the pod, how to get in touch, and our entire back catalog is there, including episode summaries. Missed these sections of the JMT episodes? You can find them there. Missed a Triple Crowner episode? Yep, that's there too. World travelers, adventure athletes, polar explorers, Barkley Marathon competitors, authors, filmmakers, documentarians, and more are waiting for you. Take a look at the new website, and just a reminder, adventure lives here. only went out for a walk and finally concluded to stay out till sundown for going out I found was really going in John Muir it was only day four of his 10-day hike on the Torres del Paine in Patagonia and Steele was wondering what the heck had happened he had the right gear all ultralight he had the right food he was an avid hiker who had done several multi-day trips before but he was up against it this time True, it was the longest day of the trip at 20 miles, but as he stumbled into camp that evening, he could only wonder if his body would cooperate the next morning so he could continue his trip. What if it didn't? I'm Doc, and this is the John Freakin' Muirpod.
Welcome to the John Freakin' Muir Pod. Lace up those boots and sling on the pack for a romp through trails, short and long. With your host and renaissance man, Doc, it's time to embrace the suck. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere, and even earn money, all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your pod- podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I feel like my creativity has raised to another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. And welcome back for another episode of the John Freakin' Muir Pod. For those of you who are new to the pod, I'm Doc and I'll be your host. Before we get too far down the trail, I want to give you a quick update on listenership. We now have people tuning in from 29 countries, 44 states, and the District of Columbia. And you know what? Still not a single listener in Alabama. Amazing. Well, we've got a great guest for this week's episode. Joining us today is a Pacific Northwest native, Steel Carter, who was born and raised in the Seattle suburbs and has a passion for bagging alpine meadows and circumambulating stratovolcanoes. He went from weekend backpacking warrior to through hiker when he was laid off from his tech job in 2017 and decided to take that opportunity to hike the PCT with his dog, Cora. They completed it in 171 days with a continuous northbound footpath until they ran into their first fire closure at Crater Lake. All told, they had to skip about a about 250 miles of fire closures in Oregon and Washington. Well, Steele, we will not be skipping any miles today. Good. That skipping those miles broke my heart. I still feel like I have to qualify every time I talk about I hiked the PCT. Well, I didn't quite do all of it. Nobody else really seems to care, but it's that, that was very a heartbreaking moment when I had to, to turn around. But one day I'll, I'll catch up on those miles down the road. That was going to be one of my first questions, but I have to tell you that uh, if anybody complains about that or makes a comment about that, you can just tell them to go, you know, take a hike because you, you did 2,400 miles there. That's, yeah, that's, that's no. nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. Um, I, nobody else gives me any shit. I give myself shit. It was, it's, uh, for whatever reason, people just get obsessed with the, you know, this arbitrary line from Mexico to Canada. And like, there's this romantic idea, like I'm going to walk all the way and like, it's completely arbitrary. You're making up the rules for yourself. But um, yeah, I was, that's what drew me out there is that romantic idea of walking across the country. And so like having to give that up, even though nobody else cares, it was still pretty difficult for me, but it was, I, in the end, I don't think it matters all that much. It's just a point of pride. I still had the, a great adventure out there. That's right. And once, once you've completed all the other adventure, adventures you want to do, you, it gives you an excuse to go back out there and, and knock down those 250 miles. Exactly. Yeah. Hopefully, I'll, maybe I'll be able to go do the entire thing in one go. You did it in quite a challenging year too, uh, 2017, right? 
That's right. People were calling it the the year of ice and fire, which I'm sure you can say in, in most any year, but that year was a particularly difficult one. There was a uh, record snowpacks um, and lots of people did a lot of flip-flopping to try to avoid the snow to uh, varying levels of success. And then there was just crazy fires. Um, I, all of Oregon, I just couldn't see anything because there was just smoke every day. Just like you know, coughing from, from the levels of smoke, no views, and um, had to skip a couple large sections, about half of Oregon and uh, another 100-mile section um, from White Pass to Snoqualmie in, um, in Washington, which was, was pretty heartbreaking. The spirits were pretty low, but once we got past those fire closures, things cleared up and got into the, what was my favorite part of the trail was the, the North Cascades. So um, all in all, it, it worked out pretty well. Uh, and it, I, I think that the challenge was definitely worthwhile. Like I, I, would, I wouldn't pick a different year. Like it was a lot of fun dealing with those challenges. Um, maybe it would be nice if I could get a continuous footpath, but like the, the challenge, it taught me a lot. And um, it, it made the, the whole experience more valuable to me. Yeah, and I know it's no comparison, but I remember 2017 very uh, vividly because my son and I, hiked the southern half of the John Muir Trail, did about 125 miles uh, in 2017. And uh, while we didn't run into any fires, the snowpack in August was still uh, uh, miserable at times and the water crossings were, were epic. Yeah, it was wild. Like the, the Sierra was unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. Like we, we went in in uh, June and um, when I got to the Sierra, everybody was bailing like uh we were at kennedy meadows and the rumor mill was flowing like crazy everybody was coming back with horror stories like oh it's completely impossible just go home and give up basically was the attitude and i was really lucky when i got to kennedy meadows that i found this group of about 15 people who were just as crazy and dedicated as me and were like no we're going in we're gonna try it um we've got a guy who took a mountaineering class and is going to teach us all how to self-arrest and so we're going to go in and we're going to stick together and we're going to figure this out. And fortunately, we were able to make it all the way through. We went really slow, and, uh, but we, we stuck together and um, we found like having a, a group of about 15 people makes it really useful for when you get to a river crossing. You can just spread out. Everybody looks for the best crossing. You can stick together and like have the tall people reinforce the short people and you know everybody can support each other and so we had a really great group there was almost nobody out there at the beginning like we were the only ones it was completely wild experience and just like the mountain it felt like it's something that humans are not supposed to see it's just so crazy there's so much water everywhere just the and there's destruction from all of the the avalanches and everything it just looks like absolute madness there are parts of the trail where it's completely submerged and you're just walking through a river and um just walking through that experience after coming from the desert where it's just kind of like you know head down and cruise with your headphones in and just follow the trail and sort of space out suddenly you're getting lost constantly you're navigating you have to conserve battery on your phone so you're not actually using it. You're only using it for navigation. And now you're in this tight-knit group of people that are basically going to war every day to try to like make it through to the other side. And that whole experience was, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Like I always tell people, I have friends that are going out to hike the PCT and they're like worried about the snow and they're like saying, oh, we're going to flip-flop. Like, no, stick it through. It will be so worth it. As long as you come prepared and you know how to navigate through the snow, 
and you stick in your group and you make smart decisions, you're going to have the time of your life. It's totally doable. And yeah. That sounds incredible. And we're going to get into to more details on that trip. But first things first, uh, Steel, do you have a, a trail name? Although with a name like Steel, I'm not sure you need a trail name. Exactly. That's pretty much what happened. Um, I, I already like my name quite a bit and nobody really tried to give me a trail name. They sort of just assumed that Steel was already a trail name and I didn't bother telling them otherwise. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with my name. I like what my mom gave me. It's actually my middle name, but I've always gone by Steel. And I think the purpose of trail names is that it's supposed to be something unique and memorable. And mm-hmm. so my name was already memorable. So I just stuck with it. That's right. It's like you're like an, uh, uh, an action hero from a film. That's, that's, uh, that's the name for a, a whole uh, movie series. Exactly. Apparently, my mom was watching Remington Steel right before she had me. So nice. Good series. Good series. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> I've never watched it, but uh, <laughs> it's a cool name. All right. And uh, also, if, you're, uh, if you've listened to the pod before, you'll know that we have a little section called the Pro Tip Insight of the Week. Just want to give you the heads up on that. When we get to the end of our conversation, I'm going to ask you to share with our listeners uh, what, the, what the Pro Tip Insight of the Week is. And it has to flow from our conversation, just something natural, unplanned, just uh, something that our, our listeners will, will benefit from. All right. I'll look out for that. Okay. So let's talk about how you got into through hiking. Yeah. So, um, I grew up in the Northwest. There's lots of hiking around here and sort of my whole life. Um, it's just been in my backyard. I have been going out on day hikes mostly when I was a kid, I did boy Scouts for a year. Um, and then decided it was, there's too much structure. I didn't think it was that cool. I like just, you know, going doing my own thing, but what really, uh, got me started on the whole backpacking trajectory was, um, early on in high school, I did a search and rescue training. Um, I had a hardcore buddy of mine that convinced me to do it. And I sort of tagged along with him and dragged my parents to REI. And we dropped a thousand dollars on all this crazy backpacking gear that they sold to us. Like looking back, like the stuff I bought was just heinously unnecessary. I had like (laughs) expensive sunglasses and like an 85 liter pack and just like a super heavy uh, tent and sleeping bag and just all this unnecessary crap. And then I went out there did all this training, had a great time. Um, and then with the super heavy pack, and then at the end of the training, there's this course they call course two. Course one is sort of easy. They take you out, you, you know, learn how to use a compass and all that stuff. And then course two is super hardcore. It's in winter and you're going through super thick forest and like, you know, Northwest rainforest style brush. And you're not on a trail. You're just following a compass bearing straight through snow covered chaos and you're going across frozen rivers and stuff all weekend and carrying all this super heavy gear. And I went through that weekend and like busted my ass, tried really hard and got to the end of it. And I ended up failing. Like our, we, you're supposed to follow compass bearings to like find markers and like do story problems and stuff. And like, we didn't get enough points to actually finish. And after that I was just broken and I decided I'm not going to do it again. I just gave up and suddenly I had all this backpacking gear and so and then after that, I went out with some of my buddies and decided to go uh, do a hike called the Seven Lakes Basin in the uh, Olympic Peninsula, which looking back was one of the, the best hikes I've ever done. It's up in the, um, it's like an alpine meadow with crazy blooming wildflowers. We did it in spring. And that was just a magical moment for me. And ever since then, I've sort of been hooked 
on getting out and ex experiencing the wilderness that is around us and sort of living out of a backpack in that sort of minimalist self-sufficient sort of way. And, um, yeah. And then I, you know, grew up doing that on the weekend and, um, eventually I got a job and was working in tech and sort of, you know, not happy with the direction my life was going, going down this career path and sort of showing up to work every day and not being super stoked about it. And, um, uh, eventually I started channeling all my energy into hiking on the weekend to sort of deal with the stress of uh, having a day job where you sit at a desk. You know, I wanted to, you know, exercise my body to, to sort of counteract that. And um, at this point I had already gotten a dog and I had a dog living with me and I'd always had in the back of my mind, even when I went to get this dog, I was like, this, this might make it hard to do a through hike one day. And I was like, no, through hiking is crazy. I'm never going to do that. I don't need to worry about that. I'm going to get the dog. Uh -huh. And then, so I got the dog and then I just kept getting further and further into hiking to sort of like counteract my day job. And then I started rethinking my decision and I was like, you know what? I've seen other people do this through hiking thing with the dog. It's possible. There's guys like trauma, um, who's a, another prominent hiker who did the first winter crossing of the PCT. He's done a lot of hiking with his dog. I sort of followed him, saw that he did it. Then there's, a, there's another guy called Mayer who hikes with the Shiba Inu, same kind of dog that I have. Uh -huh. And so I sort of had been following them and sort of seeing like, well, maybe this is something that's actually possible. And then I decided, well, I got to, I got to focus on my career. I'm going to do that. I'm going to stay here and stick it out. Like I'm, I'm, spent all this time in school, invested all this energy into getting here. I've only been here for two years. I should stick it out. And then right after I made that decision, um, I got called into my boss's office and he said, you're being laid off. Like half the company's being laid off. Um, we were having financial troubles. And I was like, oh, well, I like, honestly, I was super relieved when that happened. I was like, okay, this is my chance. Like I'm going to get some severance pay and I have, I have enough money squirreled away that I can you know, not work for six months, I'm going to try to make this work. And so that was 2017. I, I committed to it and, um, I showed up and I, uh, knocked it out and I, it was the most, the best decision I've ever made. Getting laid off was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Well, I've got, I've got quite a few thoughts here as you, as you ran through that information. Number one is it seems like, uh, structure is not your thing. Boy Scouts, uh, too, too much structure. Oh, this yeah. whole, uh, uh, class uh was the second second class of the, of the training so oh, like yeah it's, it's pretty structured you got to find these these waypoints and these items yeah. and, and that didn't go well and you're yep. just much happier out there on your own doing your own thing yeah totally and that's that's i think the one of the main appeals to backpacking for me like it's really nice being out in nature like i love that stuff but like the, the thing that really does it for me is i'm completely self-sufficient there's nobody telling me what to do except, you know, the environment. Like I don't have to follow anybody else's rules. I do what works for me and all of my actions have direct consequences for me. And I'm not just, you know, doing something for someone else. That's always sort of been um, something that's very important to me, having that sort of autonomy. Right. And then a couple of weeks ago we had Chris Brindley Jr. on the show and he talked about the moment he was an advertising executive in LA. And he talked about the moment he was sitting in his cubicle and he heard a voice tell him, you know, go backpacking and not only just go backpacking, but go backpacking in Yosemite. And he'd never been to Yosemite. He'd never done any backpacking. And he followed this, this interior, this interior monologue. It took him away from the cubicle and changed his life completely. And so I don't know, I don't know if you heard a voice, but it sounds like a very similar experience. 
Oh yeah, I it, I don't know if there's a specifically a voice telling me to do it, but there's a strong force inside me. Like I still feel that today. Like I've sort of I'm I'm living this sort of life where I've I've I could have gone and become a dirtbag, but I decided to come back and now I have a day job, you know, I'm sitting at a desk still. I'm still having these thoughts like, man, I really wish I was outside hiking right now, you know, and I have to always remind myself why I'm doing this, you know, and like I'm I'm working so that I can enable myself to do other things and to save up money so that I can have the life I want to have, you know, and I sort of have to remind myself uh, why I'm not, you know, just living in the wilderness, living a much simpler life. Right. And so what is, what's your current position, your current job? So right now I'm a solutions architect at this uh, crowdsourcing company. Um, so basically it's... No, I, I understood every single one of those words, but I still have, I have no idea what you do. It's very difficult to describe. It's like this extremely niche field that's really new. And like, I'm actually pretty prominent in this field because I've been doing it for about six years and it's kind of uh, becoming very important for speech technology. So things like, you know, you're like uh, Siri and Cortana uh, and Google, all of these services that use natural language to uh, understand us and to interact with us. Um, like, you know, voice recognition and personal assistant technology. There's all this um, linguistic and machine learning technology that goes into that stuff. And so I studied computational linguistics in school, which is the application of computer science to linguistics to sort of solve those problems and build those products. And so I've been working on a very specific corner of that world where it's like they need to collect data to train their models for uh, the natural language processing uh, applications. So for example, say Siri wants to um, expand their product so that they can understand uh, Dutch, right? So they need thousands of hours of people speaking Dutch and saying things that commands to Siri. So I am a specialist in figuring out how to get them that data. So I design these workflows using a crowdsourcing platform to sort of uh, connect people all over the world with our platform where we have them download an app, talk to their phone, and then I send that data to someone else. Another Dutch speaker somewhere listens to it and validates that it's good. And I sort of design the whole pipeline to get the data so that it's all automated and scalable and has the quality in the end. It's kind of hard to break down that, that description, you know, when I'm at a party and I need to give a description in 10 seconds, but it's, it's interesting work. So when, when Siri is speaking Dutch at, the, at my, next, uh, my next party, it's, it's because of you. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just a tiny little piece in a huge chain of, of very right. complicated stuff that's going on. But yeah, I like to think that I, I'm an important part of the process. And where do you see these virtual assistants uh, going over the next 10 years? If you had, if you had to make a prediction, what, what's life going to be like with virtual assistants in, in 10 years? So... I feel very conflicted about this because I think a lot about, you know, what's technology doing to us, you know, where is it headed? How is it interacting with our lives? There are a lot of ways that technology is making our lives um, worse. I think like it's, it's making people feel more isolated in some ways, you know, they're, they're interacting through screens instead of in person. Um, they're being drawn into consumption and things like that. And I worry about that. Um, and I do think that there's an element of what I do that probably contributes to that. But I like to think that the work I'm doing as far as working on natural language processing is working towards making technology um, more 
frictionless for us to work with instead of like, you know, staring at a screen and poking at it and sort of getting drawn out of the moment. It's, it's more seamless. It's more like you can have a conversation with technology and it's actually supposed to just make your life easier without disrupting it. You can pay attention to what you're doing and um, you don't have to, you know, worry about learning a complicated interface or learn how to, you know, use all these abstract tools. It's something that's intuitive. So uh, I think that we're going to move closer and closer to having technology be less in the way. But I do worry that, you know, there are these incentives where the people who own the technology are just trying to make money. So they're not necessarily looking out for what's best for us and for making our lives better. So we really have to be careful about what we're doing. So when I take my, my through hike of the PCT in 10 years, I can have a conversation with my virtual assistant. Uh, oh, yeah, you feel, can not feel so alone out there. I, I would not be surprised if there will be like a through hiker assistant the app that you can download and you can say, Oh, I'm going to uh, come up with a plan for me. I, I want to hike this year. Um, tell me what my resupply points should be. And like, Oh, I'm going to be at this uh, part of the trail on this date, send a resupply package for me and it'll manage all that stuff for you. And that part of me is kind of worried about that because that sort of takes some of the magic out of it. You know, the adventure of figuring things out on your own, but if it makes it easier for people to get out in the woods, then, um, that's probably a good thing. Nice. Nice. We'll wait and see, see what happens. Yeah. So, um, let's get back to your, your PCT trip. Uh, how long did it take you to plan that? I know you, you kind of, uh, left the job kind of suddenly what part yeah. of the year was that? And then when did you start your trip? Yeah. So the way the, the layoff work, it's really funny. They, so they didn't have enough money at the company to keep all the people on board. So they fired about half the people in, um, I think it was, January of 2017 around then and then they realized as they were firing me that wait they actually need me um, in order to keep functioning because what I was doing couldn't be done like easily handed off so I talked to them we worked it out and they said okay we'll keep you around until April so you can go start the trail and that worked out really nicely because I could you know earn some more money and do some planning get prepared um, and so basically while I was working, I spent half my time just doing the minimum amount of work I needed to, you know, keep processes running. And then I spent half my time just researching. So I was, you know, reading all the trail blogs. Um, and, you know, Halfway Anywhere is, is a great resource. Um, I was reading that. Um, I was reading As the Crow Flies is another great resource. And I didn't go too hardcore in the planning. I just wanted to familiarize myself with what I was getting into, make sure I understood what all the challenges were, what I was going to be seeing, where I actually needed to send resupply boxes, which was not too many places. There's just a couple places where you, it's a good idea to send boxes ahead. And for the rest, I pretty much just made sure I was ready to improvise as I went and like uh, make sure I showed up with all the gear I needed, with all the permits and everything I needed with, um, you know, and, and then I would be able to just, um, follow the advice of blogs anytime I come into town, like, oh, this is a good place to eat. This is a good place to figure out where to get your laundry done. Like I could just look that up because I had the information uh, from As the Crow Flies saved on my phone. So I could just look that up, go into town, find a grocery store, get whatever I needed and then get back. So as far as planning in, in the information age, I don't think you need to do all that much planning. This sort of connects with what we were talking about before. Like if I tried to do that strategy 20 years ago, it'd be very different. And I 
would have to be much more methodical, do a lot more planning and not really, I wouldn't have this sort of resource of, of internet blogs and accumulated knowledge that's very easy to find to sort of figure out where I need to go and what I need to get. So in that sense, I, I, I think that you don't need to do a lot of planning. You can sort of rely on technology. Yeah, some folks I've had on, you know, they take they take a great deal of pleasure in the planning process and, you know, they'll set up their trip for, you know, next year and they'll spend the whole year just kind of obsessing and and googling and reading and buying and and uh just mapping everything out as much as they can and that's that's part of the that's part of the adventure for them. And yeah. so what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, the way it all worked out, you, you really took what maybe 2 or 3 months to gather yeah. your gather your information and plan your trip and just uh what you didn't know for sure you just kind of uh winged it when you got there yeah pretty much i mean the the main difficulties for me were the logistics of doing it with a dog so that's the main thing i was concerned about um and that, the main thing i focus my research on and i i i definitely sympathize with that attitude of you know getting obsessed with planning like i definitely uh got very obsessed with the pct and sort of getting ready for it and the idea of it. But the things that interested me were, you know, um, learning about what a great time I was going to have and, and, you know, watching other people's great adventures and hearing about their stories. And also, I, I guess I, I like obsessing about gear. So like getting my, my gear dialed in as light as possible, going on practice hikes and sort of making sure I had everything ready. But as far as like actually planning dates and, you know, how much food and what food I'm going to bring, like, I, I don't like worrying about that. I like to just figure it out as I go. I want to talk to you about your gear. I want to talk to you about hiking with the dogs. So let's go, yeah. to, let's go to the gear first. What, what, what did your pack weigh? What was your base mm -hmm. weight? And what, what were the, the, just take us through a run through, a quick run through of the contents of your bag. Yeah. So I think when I started out, my base weight was about 10 pounds. Ooh. Um, and so this was a, a setup that I had um, used on the Torres del Paine circuit in South America and um, with, you know, very minor uh, changes and it had worked well for me there. So I just stuck with it. But basically I had a, a Z-Pax Arc Hall as my backpack. Um, I had a... What's the, what's the capacity of that? I think it's like 60 liters. Okay. I mean, I never ran out of space. It's just basically a bottomless pit and you just throw stuff in there. Um, and I mean, I can dig into my reviews of each of the pieces of gear. Like I wasn't particularly happy with my Z-Packs backpack. I had a lot of issues with it. I ended up having to replace it. Um, oh, there but, goes your Z-Pack sponsorship. Yeah. I mean, it's, it was a great pack. I really loved their tent. I, okay. The next piece of gear was an Altiplex tent, which is basically like a one and a half person tent that uses one pole. I love that thing. It was great. Uh, it served me very, very well. The only issue I had with it was the zipper and, you know, zippers only last so long when they're getting abused the way they, they do on a through hike. So I just replaced the zipper and I was good to go. Uh, that tent was amazing. The backpack, I feel like it didn't work very well for me. I know a lot of other people who had similar issues with their Z-Packs backpack. I don't know if they've addressed the issues since then, but like um, the, I had the, the struts on the backpack one of them broke. Like, I think it was like my third day Ooh. on the PCT in the desert and the support was great. They sent me out a replacement piece and I put it back in. But by the time I got to the Sierra, the backpack basically just started falling apart. Like the, the hip belt broke off. Um, and the, uh, one of the connection struts in the backpack broke and basically it became unusable. And, um, I switched 
So what are you doing? You're out in the middle of nowhere and your backpack is unusable. <laughs> oh man, it was brutal. Like I, I basically had to like, uh, just deal with an extremely uncomfortable backpack for, um, until I got to, um, mammoth and, um, yeah. So, uh, I, I basically, uh, my, my buddy had the same problem. He had his EPAX backpack. We were going into the Sierras and to be fair, um, we were overloading the packs because, uh, my base weight in the Sierra was higher. It was like probably 14 pounds with 14 some... pounds, 14 pounds should not be breaking a, a no, 60, but 60 liter backpack. The, the, the issue was that we loaded it up with food. So all told, I think it weighed like 45 pounds. Got it. Um, got it. Um, which I think is, is more than you're supposed to carry in those backpacks. And, um, basically it, it started to, to break as a result. And in retrospect, we, we took too much food, but we were terrified, you know, like we could get stuck out there for a long time. We don't want to run out of food. Um, so we just brought, we were prepared to be out there for two weeks basically. Um, and so when I, I got to uh, Mammoth, I ordered an Osprey Exos, which was a great pack, lasted me the rest of the trail, super sturdy, didn't have to worry about it breaking. Um, and yeah, that I was pretty happy with that backpack. Yeah, I think I think uh, my buddy Chopper hikes with with that pack. Yeah, it's a good pack. Um, I actually at the end of the trail, all of my gear ended up getting stolen, so I don't have it anymore. It was in the I left it in my the trunk of my car, stupidly, and I have a fenced-in garage at my apartment complex, and uh, someone uh, broke in and stole it all. So somebody, some homeless person out there has like some wicked ultralight gear and is, is living like a king with my Altiplex backpack and all that stuff. Well, I hope um, it's a, I hope, I hope it's a needy person who ended up with that stuff and not just some, some, uh, criminal. That's, that's yeah. terrible. My, yeah. My only concern is maybe they, they haven't figured out how to set it up with the trekking poles, <laughs> but I, I hope somebody's getting use out of it. But I mean, it gave me an excuse to, um, invest in new sets of gear. So right now I'm using uh, mostly Gossamer gear. Mm-hmm. I'm using a, I have a Gossamer gear Kumo that I use for my weekend trips. And um, I have a Gossamer gear Mariposa backpack that I use for my longer trips. And I just absolutely love those backpacks. Um, yeah. And Gossamer gear is really light, right? Oh yeah. It's, um, I, I think they're a bit more sturdy than the, the Z-Pack stuff um, just because they're not using Cuban Um and it doesn't have a frame or any of those weird pieces that can break. And so I actually really like the frameless packs now. Um, I like that the way they, they carry, they're just like closer. The center of gravity is on your back instead of mm-hmm. being like pushed out, which, you know, some people prefer to have that gap for the airflow. Um, but I just think it carries so much better when it's directly on your back. So I, I'm a convert. I've completely loved the, the frameless packs now. Okay. So you, you are a tent guy. You're not a tarp guy, not a cowboy camping guy. You're a tent guy. Oh yeah. I love, I love tents. The tent I'm using now is another Gossamer gear. It's the Gossamer gear, the one tent. It's very similar to the, um, Altiplex tent I had before, but a little smaller and it's, uh, still nylon instead of Cuban. And I love having just psychologically having some shelter around you that's closed in. Like I can't sleep. I tried cowboy camping a couple, couple times on the PCT and I, I just couldn't psychologically like, you know, relax when I'm just completely open and exposed. I'm sure I could get used to it, but like there was one time where I woke up um, 
uh, when I was cowboy camping and I was just covered in ants. I had set myself up right on top of an ant hill and I was just tiny little thousands of tiny little ants crawling all over me. And I was just like, I'm never doing that again. I'm, I'm that, setting up that, my tent from now on. That right there. That's enough to never cowboy camp again. I, if that ever happened to me, I'd, I'd be in the same boat with you. Yep. Never again. Yeah. Which, I mean, you totally can get away with it though. If, if you like that kind of thing, like it, it rarely rains on the PCT, so you can you can definitely do it if that's your mojo. But I I hate bugs, so that I'm I'm sticking with the tent. Now the PCT has uh, I like to say multiple personalities. They're very the, the trail itself, you know, of course over 2,600 miles, it has very distinct characteristics depending on what part of the trail you're you're currently hiking. Um, what uh, what was your favorite part of the PCT? What area? I think I think you said Washington. Yeah. I, I, I am, I, this question is very difficult for me because I'm totally torn because I'm, I'm particularly partial to the North Cascades because I grew up around here and that has a really special place in my heart. And it's the, the Alpine meadows in the North Cascades are just unparalleled. There, there's just crazy wildflowers. It feels like you're walking through a Dr. Seuss book like the the colors everywhere mm-hmm. and like the views of like the volcanoes like the the volcanoes are super prominent and like you know you see mount rainier and it just dominates everything and you can see it from everywhere whereas um further south like in the sierras you know you're up in the mountains and you don't have that same sort of prominence like mount whitney like you couldn't even tell where it was unless somebody told you because it's just surrounded by other mountains um right but i would say in terms of like the experience that i had hiking through the Sierra was my favorite part of the trail just because it was, like I said before, it was just this super epic experience. Unlike anything I've ever seen before with just like huge mountains and um, chaos and destruction everywhere. And also all this beauty and uh, sort of your, uh, further away from civilization, it feels like, or at least I was when I went through there because there was nobody out there. Um, and we were, uh, pretty much on our own and trying to navigate through the snow and sort of that experience in, in that epic, beautiful place was, was, was my favorite part of the trail, but my, my favorite uh, place in terms of just like uh, the way it looks and uh, the, where I would, uh, if I could pick one place to hike for the rest of my life, it would be in North Cascades. Gotcha. Yeah. The Sierras, I think that's a great way to describe them. They are epic and uh, you're right. I, I, never felt so isolated or so remote as, you know, being in the middle of the, of the Sierras on the, on the John Muir trail. That was just an incredible experience. Yeah. All right. Hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear from Steele about what it's like to hike with a dog. So stay tuned for that. I'm Chris Brindley Jr., a multidisciplined adventure athlete and storyteller. When I'm not hanging out on the side of mountains, I'm stoked to be listening to the John Freakin' Mirror Pod. All right, welcome back. So here we are with Steele, and we're going to talk to him about his trip in 2017 on the PCT and what it was like to do 2,400 miles or so with a dog. First of all, what kind of dog and the dog's name again? The dog's name is Cora. That's K-O-R-R-A. Oh, there's um, a specific spelling for it, is there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, she's actually named after like a, an animated 
television show called The Legend of Korra. Um, but yeah, she's a Shiba Inu, which is a, a Japanese breed. Um, and they're a very, very sturdy breed. They're very uh, primitive in the sense that they're, they have DNA that's very close to being like a wolf. So they're good hiking dogs. The only problem is they're very stubborn and um, they don't like taking orders. They're not like a, you know, uh, a working dog, like a, you know, a shepherd or like um, uh, a, a, uh, like a golden retriever. That's like very uh, concerned with making you happy and doing what you tell to do. So the, the main struggle with that breed of dog is convincing them that they should be uh, getting miles and, and hiking. She has all of the stamina and the physical ability to do it is she's just not always motivated to hike. So there was definitely some, some periods where I had to carry her. <laughs> that sounds like a little bit extra adventure for you. Oh yeah, definitely. But I didn't mind the challenge. But in terms of, you know, you also have to feed the dog, right? So you're yeah, not yeah. just carrying your food, but you're carrying, you're carrying her food as well. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of other people who hike with dogs will give them a little pack and that makes sense for for other dogs like i said if your dog is like a working breed and has a lot of energy then uh you're probably the limiting factor and not the dog in those cases but for me the limiting factor is definitely the dog so i don't want her to carry any extra weight i'm going to carry all the weight for her because i'm waiting for her at the end of the day and if i want to make miles i have to carry her or motivate her to do it so i don't want her to have anything holding her back so i carried her food for her and she's about 20 22 pounds so not a super huge dog very manageable i can pick her up and carry her so she doesn't need a ton of food um so i would carry probably only like a, a pound or two of food would last like a week so it's not all that much extra to carry and um like i would just carry like an extra half liter or liter of water at a time and so all told it didn't make that much of a difference uh, in terms of the weight that I was carrying. Um, but yeah, the main thing is when I had to carry the dog itself, that was, that was what she, she's, uh, she made it challenging in that way. <laughs> and did Cora sleep in the tent with you? Oh yeah. She, she would snuggle up next to me. Um, and, uh, she, like I, uh, I cowboy camped a couple of times and she didn't sleep very well. So like most of the time she would just sleep inside the tent. I've, I hear about people sometimes keeping their dog outside of the tent, like leashed up. Uh, like I think trauma uh, does that. And like, that seems insane to me. That's just like a cougar snack tied to a tree. Like I, I, I would think you would want to keep them inside with you, but I don't yeah, know. That, that reminds me of a scene out of Jurassic park where they stake the goat to the ground and uh, right. the T-Rex comes along. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Want to avoid that. <laughs> and so, um, what is a dog permitted on the trail the whole way? Are there are there rules against that? Or yeah, so this is where it sort of gets sticky. So there's uh, most of the trail, you're totally okay bringing a dog with you as long as you keep it on a leash. Um, specifically, the national parks in California don't allow dogs. Um, but the national parks in Washington and Oregon do on a leash. Um, but uh, I decided to ignore those laws. Uh, and there's a lot of people in the hiking community that get very upset about that. I'm sure you'll get some hate mail. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's a risk I decided to take. And um, I 
made sure that I was minimizing my impact. I was keeping the dog in the leash. She's very well trained. And I decided that it was worth it to me to, to risk that. So I, I went through the national parks and at the time there, there weren't uh, very many rangers cause it was such a high snow year. Um, so I decided to risk it. Um, but yeah, the law is, uh, says that in, uh, Sequoia Kings Canyon and Yosemite and Lassen, um, you, are not allowed to have dogs as pets. You can have dogs as service animals and they define a service animal as not just an emotional support animal. It's a dog that um, you could not be there without having that dog providing a service to keep you safe there. So um, like if it's just there to provide emotional support, that's not good enough uh, according to the law. Um, And so a lot of people will, um, uh, say that they have a service dog because there's no actual legal official recognition of what a service dog is. It's very vaguely defined and there's no like official governing body that, you know, certifies you as a service dog. You can go to any website and just buy like a service dog badge. So the majority of the people who are in these parks with dogs saying it's a service dog in reality probably could be there without that dog. And in that sense, they're they're breaking the law but the the law is so broad that you pretty much can't get in trouble for it because the the rangers don't have the latitude to uh, actually do anything about it so i the law is in a really weird place i think it makes it easy to abuse but at the same time i'm not sure how many people actually uh are taking advantage of it to get into parks i'm probably ignoring some people that you know actually really do need to use that law and i should probably make sure that I'm not, you know, uh, ignoring them. And, but that's, that's pretty much the situation. And did you run into any Rangers and they give you a hard time? Uh, all the Rangers I ran into, uh, I ran into probably two or three. They just ask you, um, is it a service dog? And, uh, you tell them yes. And they say, great, make sure your dog's on a leash and, uh, stay safe you know they're, they're just worried about making sure that you stay safe but what you have a, a, a bigger issue to worry about is other hikers because people are upset that people are uh, taking advantage of the the vagueness of the laws and they will call you out i've i had uh, one person get upset with me but most of the other hikers that i was with saw my dog and were super excited to hang out with the dog and you know uh be with the trail dog and have that sort of morale boost. And they saw that she was happy and that I was taking care of her. I was burying her poop just like mine and I was making sure to have no impact and they, they didn't have a problem. Um, so yeah, if, if you're going to try to do that, just be aware that's what you're up against. Um, I, I'm not recommending that anybody break the law, uh, but uh, just be aware of what the law is and, and understand the consequences. Yeah, we both acknowledge, you know, the the, the policy and the, the spirit of leave no trace and have no impact and leave only footprints. Uh, right. But, but people who get upset about seeing a dog on the trail, give me a break. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I understand where they're coming from because there are some very poorly behaved dogs out there. And True. a lot of people hike with their dogs off leash. And I actually have been in some very scary situations where I run into unleashed dogs, uh, specifically on the PCT. Um, I was uh, doing the right next to the aqueduct um, in Southern California or near LA. There's the aqueduct walk and um, by Mojave or before Mojave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Around there. Mm -hmm. And you, there's actually some 
uh, houses along there. And there was a, a dog in someone's yard that jumped a fence. It was a pit bull. It followed me for about half a mile because I had my dog with me. And it, I'm, I'm sure it assumed my dog was a threat. And then it circled around in front of us and blocked our path. And I tried to like get around and it's just like growling at us. And it basically lunged at my dog, bit her by the neck, and I had to fight it off and sort of like I had to, to kick it and sort of throw it away from my dog. And it bit and took a chunk out of my leg. And like that was a very wow. traumatic experience, but it yeah. eventually ran off after I kicked it. But I mean, I've had, you know, lots of experiences like that with, you know, uh, uh, aggressive dogs that aren't a leash. So I totally understand why people are a, a very defensive about, you know, having dogs on the trail. And I think it's, it's very important that if you are bringing a dog on the trail, that you make sure to have a well-behaved dog and a dog that is on a leash and under control because other people are out there and they're trying to enjoy the wilderness too. And you definitely do not want to be disrupting them or introducing any threats to them. So make sure that you're being a good ambassador for, for people who hike with dogs. Yeah, I totally get your point, but that wasn't even a dog, a, a bad dog on the trail. That was a, a dog in a backyard that jumped a yeah. fence and ended up on the trail in front of you. Yeah, that's true. That's crazy. And, yeah, that's, that, that is its own weird specific situation, but yeah, um, it's, yeah, dogs are, are definitely, uh, they, they can be, be scary. Like even the dogs I've encountered on the trail, like I've had, especially since I have a dog, they tend to have bad interactions where they might just ignore a person, but if they see another dog, they'll try to, you know, be aggressive. So yeah, in general, I say, keep your dog on a leash. That's a very smart thing to do. It protects the dog, it protects the wildlife, it protects other dogs, it protects people. And it's just a very easy thing you can do to minimize that. Right. So Cora, she, she did the whole trip on a leash. Yes, she did. Um, well, so I, I would take her off leash when we would get to camp mm-hmm. and she is generally so tired that she doesn't do anything. I mean, she's a well-behaved dog in general and she like stays close to me and doesn't cause trouble. But if she had the energy to be running around, I wouldn't be letting her off leash because then she might chase down some wildlife and kill it. So while I'm hiking, especially very important, I keep her on a leash because, um, you never know what like a, a animal could cross our path. She might try to chase it. You know, there could be rattlesnakes. Um, there could be another wild dog on the trail. So I always keep her on a leash there. And then I would just let her walk around camp and, and beg for food when we stop, basically. Right. And did she do all 2,400 miles? Yeah, she did it all with me, all the miles I did. Well, so with the caveat that I carried her for probably 5 to 10% of the trail, mm-hmm. um, she, she would be really good for the first 15 to 20 miles. And that'd be like, okay, we got to do five more miles. And she'd be like, no, I'm done. So at that point I would, I would have to pick her up and throw her over my shoulders and start schlepping. But in general, as long as I hiked a little bit slower and like, it, it's kind of hard to keep up with other people when you're hiking, when you're hiking with the dog, because you're always hiking at the dog's pace. It has to be about the dog. You're, you're not hiking your hike anymore. You're hiking your dog's hike. And that's a really important mindset to have. So like, mm-hmm. I would always uh, take lots of breaks and I would spend more of the day hiking than sitting at camp because I would uh, give her the opportunity to, to recover and sort of hike at her speed. And so, yeah. So how many miles a day would you do average? Um, I think on average, I probably did about 20 miles a day. So I started April 13th and um, which is a pretty early start date, which I, I highly recommend anybody who's trying to do a long hike with the dog start early work your way up because uh 
the dog needs more time to adapt and to get used to uh, being in trail shape. And so it's a good idea to give them time to adapt and listen to them. And uh, they, they get in trail shape a lot slower than we do, I think. But as long as you give them that time to ramp up, then they'll be in good shape. And so I, I hiked about 20 miles a day. I think the longest day we did together was 32. And that was a day where I didn't carry her at all. So I was really proud of her on that. Um, but yeah, I, I tried to average about 20. Wow. And, and you did uh, a lot of time in the snow, right? How'd she handle the snow? The snow was the easiest part for her. Like, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, she's a mountain dog. She loves this. Every time we see a patch of snow, she just perks up, gets super excited and starts dancing around in the snow. Like she lives for that. <laughs> so like when we were, that, hiking was, through the- that was not my reaction when hiking through snow. Yeah, no, exactly. Like we're, we're like falling around in sun cups. Everybody's just like cursing and frustrated because we're going like 10 miles a day and it's tough, tough miles where we're struggling to trudge through the snow. And meanwhile, my dog is just running circles around us literally. Like she, she was thriving in the, in the Sierras. She did really great. Um, Mm -hmm. And we would get to river crossing. I would just like pick her up and walk across. Um, But the, the, um, the desert was actually the real challenge for hiking with the dog. That was the hardest part. And uh, just the heat, especially my breed has a double coat, um, which is really thick. So she has a lot of fur. So she, she can overheat really easily. So the main risk when you're hiking with a dog is making sure that they are not overheating. They're not overexerting themselves. So you have to be really careful about making sure you don't hike when it's the hottest part of the day and you take it nice and slow, make sure they stay super hydrated. And so I actually ended up spending most of the desert hiking at night to just to make sure it was easier for me and easier for the dog. And so like towards the end of the desert, I I ended up doing about half my miles night hiking and that worked out great. It made it so much easier. The dog was uh, able to do way more miles. I was able to do more miles. Um, The only hard part is, you know, sleeping through the day. But uh, yeah, I would say the desert was more challenging than the mountains in that respect. I want to come back to the night hiking in just a second. Don't let me forget that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, you sound very knowledgeable about hiking with a dog. Did you do a lot of prep beforehand and kind of researching how this, how this might work out and what you need to, to stay focused on? Yeah, totally. I, um, I ha- have done quite, I had done quite a bit of hiking with my dog before and a lot of thoughts of like weekend hikes um, around here, um, getting her in shape. And so sort of learning through experience of backpacking with the dog, making sure that she was used to it. But I also read a lot of research from other people who had hiked, like um, Mayer, um, who hiked uh, with a Shiba Inu. He did the AT and the PCT and the CDT with his Shiba Inu. Um, wow. He didn't quite, there, like he skipped sections of the trail where he had to send the dog home. But um, I think the dog did all of the AT or the majority of it. Uh, and sections of the PCT and the CDT. So I, I read his blog. Um, he has a book um, that I didn't finish. I read like half of it, but uh, he was a great resource and mostly just an inspiration for figuring out the logistics of like, okay, this is actually possible. And uh, like trauma had some great advice and he taught me a lot about, you know, you're hiking your own dog's hike, you're hiking your dog's hike, not hiking your own hike. And um, you know, to make sure that your dog has time to prepare. So that's why I started with the early um, start date and ramping them up and not being afraid to night hike. Those are all things I learned from trauma. And so that was a great resource for me. All right. And did did you put anything on Cora's pads, her her feet or paws? So I had um, this uh, salve, I forget what it's called, but it's the stuff that um, 
they use for like uh mush it's musher secret that's what it's called they use for like you know um huskies that are uh doing like the iditarod and stuff or whatever that like they they rub this sort of salve on their paws and it's supposed to protect them i don't know if it actually did anything but i used that uh pretty religiously i didn't put any um any of the feet things like no, the, boot, no booties no booties, or no booties like none yeah. of the dog shoes right um my dog hates to have anything that's like um like if i try to put a shirt on her or like a, a new harness she gets super upset and refuses to walk so like she doesn't like having she doesn't like having things that are touching her paws specifically so i knew that was a no-go and i also based on what i read from trauma he said that the booties are kind of a scam and your dog can get like blisters and it doesn't actually it gives them the protection that you think it does i don't know if that's true but it seems plausible to me so basically i just made sure that um i paced myself and gave the dog time for her her feet to adapt and anytime we were hiking over lava rock um mostly in Oregon there's that really abrasive lava rock I mm-hmm. would uh carry her for those sections if especially if I noticed her um you know being careful with her paws but for the most part she didn't really have any problems one time she stepped stepped on a scorpion and got stung um I was pretty freaked out by that but she was completely fine um after uh like a, 20 minutes we just she just went right back to hiking wow. so yeah I, I, she's very tough I, she never had any pop problems and when you carried her was the typical position uh, around behind your neck between the between your neck and the backpack is that how it worked or yeah so i tried lots of different stuff so that that's that's a technique i i learned from from mayor the the guy who hikes with the chibi Inu. um he i saw he would sling the dog over his shoulders um and carry it that way and it sort of depends on what backpack you're using when i had the z-packs backpack the it it would go up too high and so it wasn't comfortable for her to hold her there so um in the desert i had a baby bjorn which is i don't know if you know there's there's like a um a thing they use to carry babies knapsack for babies right yeah exactly and so you sort of wrap them up in this sort of scarf thing and then it sort of supports them and then you can carry him like that so i i was carrying my dog and a, a baby bjorn for parts of the <laughs> desert and it, it looked pretty silly i got lots of weird stares but it, it worked out great when i needed to carry her yeah, but did but, she like it no she i mean she liked that she didn't have to walk but she wasn't <laughs> particularly excited about being in there like uh she's, she's probably a little embarrassed too yeah i mean i think she was too tired to be embarrassed <laughs> but uh she she likes being free she doesn't like being you know uh controlled so Right. Uh, in general, she likes being on the ground and uh, in control of herself. So she wasn't super stoked about that. But uh, yeah, after the desert and I switched to the um, Osprey pack, I was able to sling her over my shoulders. And that's just a much easier way to carry her. So I did that most of the time. Nice, nice. Um, any final thoughts on the on the PCT that you want to share? Um, if you're thinking about doing it, go do it. It's the can't describe how life-changingly awesome it is you did it in 171 days right is that that's a bit longer that's yeah close, that's closing in on six months right so that's a yeah bit longer than the typical four to five month uh, time frame and that's because right. you're hiking your dog's hike right exactly yeah and uh to be fair like i probably would have gone a bit slower even if i didn't have the dog just because i like you know taking my time and enjoying it you know, people say the last one to Canada wins because they get to spend the most time on the trail. 
And so I definitely liked that mindset. The, the group of people I was hiking with, um, I don't know if I, am I allowed to swear? You can swear and you can also give them a shout out uh, with okay. their girl names if you want. <laughs> okay. We call ourselves the lazy fucks because we always took our time. We got stuck in town. We, we were always um, stopping to take breaks and to smoke weed and do whatever we, so we, I, I definitely like taking my time. And the, the one thing that I regret when looking back on the trail and like, I would talk to my buddies, my hiking buddies, we all had the same mindset is like, we're so focused on this goal and getting miles in that sometimes we're not able to stop and just enjoy the situation we're in and sort of, you know, go for a swim and, you know, appreciate where you are and what you're doing. It's easy to lose track of that when you're trying to crush miles. Um, so like we, we get together and hike now periodically. We try to, uh, we're all spread out across the country. It's like a group of like 15 people. Mm -hmm. And so we try to try to group up. And when we do, we sort of hike the hike that we wish we were able to hike while we're doing the PCT where we take our time, we go for a swim, we do a nice overnight. It's really easy. So yeah, I, I definitely advocate for taking the, the slow approach and uh, enjoying your time out there. All right. Let's hear the trail names of the lazy F's. What, uh, give them, give them a shout out so they can tune into the pod and listen. Let me, let me pull up the group chat so I can see all of their names. There's, there's a lot of us. Um, so the lazy fucks nicknames. All right. So, so my trail name apparently is Cora's Porter because I, <laughs> I carry her. There's Beastie Boy, Scotty, which is kind of a lame trail name, but his, his actual name is Albin. Very cool name. But he, he wears a, a hat. He wore a hat on the trail that said Scotland on it. So we called him Scotty. Um, there's Cowboy, who another kind of lame name. He just Cowboy Camp. So we called him Cowboy. Great guy, though. Uh, there's snow. Um, and we, we call him that's short for snow white because he has a way with animals. Animals absolutely love him. Um, there's 10 G's or 10 gallon because he hiked with a 10 gallon hat. Very cool hat. Very cool guy. Um, there's GoPro because he was hiking with a GoPro. Um, another not so creative name, but, uh, cool guy. Nonetheless, um, there's dubs. And Dubs is short for wrong way because uh, I don't know the specifics of the story, but she she was she got lost a lot is my understanding. <laughs> Dubs, that's great. Um, there's Speck, um, who is uh, uh, she studies um, entomology, I think, or uh, so she was bugs? always yeah bugs. She loves uh -huh. bugs. She, uh -huh. She's always looking at tiny little bugs on the trail, and uh, you know focusing on little specks on the ground. So that's her name's Speck. There's Wing It, um, who is a very chill guy. He's, um, he was always had the, the mindset of, of not planning and figuring it out. Very positive attitude. He was always winging it. Um, there's, no, wonder you, no wonder you guys got along. Yeah, no, he, very cool guy. Um, I actually went to his, his wedding in Alaska last year. Um, he's doing very well. Um, there's, uh, Jesse, whose nickname was Righteous, he's like a very righteous Southern California type dude. Um, there's uh, Big Daddy, who's just a very tall guy. Um, and we also called him Heroin Eyes um, because he always had these uh, drugged out looking eyes, even if he wasn't drugged out. Um, 
there's Space Jam, who had these really cool, uh, like, galaxy short shorts that look like, you know, uh, Space Jam kind of shorts. Uh-huh. Um, and there's Earwig. And I don't know the story about how he got that name. I'm, I'm sure there was a story with an earwig or something stuck in his ear. Uh, there's Happy Hour. Uh, I, I don't know the story behind that, but he was a cool guy. Older guy in his, like, 40s who uh, was running a weed business from the trail. And I remember he spent like a day on the top of Mount Whitney because that was the only place he could get phone service. And he was just making a bunch of calls trying to like oh keep his business running. Very interesting guy. And yeah, I think that's the whole crew. Sorry if I missed anybody. That's just what I see in the group chat right now. That but, is quite a cast of characters. Yeah. Some great great trail names too. Yeah. The, those are my people. We're like a family and um, I, I still stay in touch with all of them. And uh, they're, they're my favorite people in the world. That's great. Hey, some of your, your earlier comments made me think of uh, Keith Foskett in his book, The Last Englishman. Did you ever read that? No, but I listened to your podcast uh, interviewing him, and that was a great interview. He's a very, very interesting guy. Yeah, and so he, he, he kind of got after himself. He was upset with himself because he was not making the progress that he wanted to make. He knew he needed to put in the miles, but he always found himself taking those zero days or Nero days where he didn't get a lot accomplished. And so that kind of uh, sounded a little bit what you were talking about there with your, with your group. Yep. And real quick, before we go to break, um, top, top best books on the PCT that you've read. Ooh, I actually, I don't read a ton of books. I used to read a lot when I was younger. So I don't know if I've actually read any PCT books. I read half of the Cheryl Strayed book, half Mm -hmm. of I, I read half of a lot of books and then lose interest into something yeah. else. Not saying anything bad about the books, but um, so yeah, the wild. Um, I, I realized halfway through that it was less about hiking and more about her life, which is interesting, but I was just like, I want to, I want to learn more about the hiking stuff. So, right. and then there's Mayer has a book about him hiking the AT. Um, I forget the name of it. That was good. I, I would finish it if I had, you know, the time or the focus. Um, other than that, I don't think I've read any, any PCT books. I should. Do you have any recommendations? Should I read that Fozzie book? Read the Fozzie book. It's really good. Yeah. The Last Englishman. And then the uh, I also, also picked up his book um, about the uh, Camino de San, del Santiago. Yeah, uh, yeah. That was, that was a really good one, too. I can't, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the book, but it was, it was really good. Um, yeah. His story uh, of the last, the last Englishman was about, you know, his trip on the PCT. It took him even longer than 171 days. And he finished in the snow up at the border, which he has parts of his, his book uh, about that, that section of the hiker, just insane. So, yeah, that's, that's one way to do it. Yeah. I, I definitely like the idea of taking my time, but based on what I was hearing in your interview with him, it sounded like he was starting to take some big risks hiking into snowstorms and stuff. So I don't know if I would go that far, but uh, yeah, that's definitely the mindset I, I like to take. I can, I can get down with that. All right. Hey, when we come back from the break, we're going to hear about a couple of more trips. We've got the, uh, the Wonderland Trail I want to talk to you about, and also the, the Torres del Paine which is in Patagonia. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Hey, this is best-selling indie author Keith Foskett. And if I'm not enjoying the great outdoors, I'm listening to the John Freaky in your podcast. 
welcome back. We're talking with Steel Carter here and his hiking buddy, Cora. And did Cora go with you on the Wonderland Trail? And the Wonderland Trail, for, for our listeners out there, that's what we were referring to in the intro when we talked about your, uh, what was it, your circum, circumambulating stratovolcano. That's, a, yeah. that's actually a circular path around Mount Rainier, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so yeah, circumambulating is just a, a fancy word I like um, because I like I like loop hikes and I, I I don't necessarily like climbing mountains. I've done some of that, like I've climbed Mount, Mount Adams and Mount St Helens, and there's a lot of suffering involved. You know, it's just very you got to wake up early, you got to trudge up steep things, and like I like some of that, but um, I like just walking around things more. You know, and mountains are really really specifically the stratovolcanoes which are the the volcanoes in the northwest that are super prominent and like they're not part of a mountain range they just sort of jut out in this sort of epic prominent way like mount rainier is you know this beautiful dominating mountain that you can see from the whole state and so but the cool thing about these mountains is they look completely different from every angle so when you're walking around them you get to see all the many different faces of the mountain, you know, and it, every, every angle looks like a, a new, new face to the mountain. So I really love that. That's, that's what's so great about the Wonderland trail um, is it's a, a, a loop around the mountain. You get to see the whole thing. And um, yeah, it, we, we did that in about six days. Um, and it was a beautiful hike. Wow. So I, I've been doing it all wrong. I've been going up yeah. and over mountains on, in the Sierras and really yeah, yeah. walking around the mountains. This is a whole new strategy for me. Yeah, yeah, it's the way to go. And I think you asked me if I brought my dog. The, the, the answer is yes, I, I brought my dog on that one. And how did she like that one? She loved it. It was, uh, again, a situation where we weren't quite in, in full trail shape. But um, I think once you get into through hiking shape, it's, it's kind of easy to get back into that mode. But um, I, I frankly was a little unprepared for the Wonderland Trail um, because it is – uh, there's a lot of elevation gain on that trail. You're just climbing up and down these huge like uh, valleys that are carved out by glaciers. Right. So it's just mm -hmm. like straight downhill and then straight uphill like all day. There's never any flat. So um, it was definitely a butt kicker. Yeah. And how, how long is the trail? It's, I think it's about 95 miles roughly. Um, so yeah, we were probably averaging, I don't know what the math on that is like 90 divided by six, but it was about 15 miles a day. Mm -hmm. I was like, Oh yeah, that'll be super easy. But I was actually uh, struggling to, to deal with that. My, my dog was too. I was definitely doing some carrying of her, but um, she, she stuck it out like a trooper. Like she always did, does. And how, how far is the trail from where you live? Um, it's about a two hour drive. Um, so it's uh, Southeast of Seattle. Um, and you can just see the mountain from the city. So um, yeah, it's not too far. I'm asking for selfish reasons as I, I plan my Wonderland trail. I need a, a place to crash the first night. So, yeah, man, uh, if you need a place to crash, I got a couch. Okay, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, very accessible. And so, what uh, I know you've got the 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 mountain in the middle, and that you're you're constantly looking at. But what are some of the other other views or other other cool features about the Wonderland Trail? Well, you can see Mount Adams. Um, it's just down south from it. Um, so you get lots of great views of Mount Adams. Um, but the, the main attraction, I would say, of, of that trail is the 
the Alpine Meadows. I I love I'm obsessed with meadows, like just the wildflowers and it's just a sort of beautiful, magical environment. And so you're just hiking up up to these meadows and then down into these river valleys, you do a river crossing and then up to these ridge lines with um great views of the mountains of uh, you can uh great of mount rainier and also these beautiful like little lakes and um flowery meadows you can go for a swim and so uh yeah lots of, of very cool little places to hang out so plenty of water on the trail lots of uh rivers and, and little lakes uh, what about the wildlife yeah so i saw some bears there are definitely bears out there um there's a crazy long and high suspension bridge, um, which uh, we saw some uh, bears from. Uh, we could just uh, look out into the valley and we saw some pretty far off black bears. Uh, there are some goats, I'm pretty sure. I might be confusing it with another hike, but I'm pretty sure we saw a pack of goats. Um, there's birds and bugs and uh, yeah, pretty typical for the whole Northwest biome. I don't think there's anything specific there, but um, yeah, the main, main attraction I would say is the bears. Yeah. Did you have to carry a bear canister to put your food in? Is that required on that trail or? Um, so I, I'm pretty sure that we were able to get away with not carrying a bear canister because they have bear boxes. Oh, um, that's helpful. Yeah. So I actually don't know if that's, I don't remember if that's true, but I, I'm, thinking back and I don't think we had a bear can. Um, so I'm assuming that's why, but, uh, yeah, if you're thinking of doing it, don't take my word, look into it. Okay. And because they have bear canisters, I mean, or bear lockers there, do you, do, are you required to, uh, camp in certain campgrounds? I mean, there's only certain spots on the trail where you can camp. It's not like the, the John Muir trail or the PCT where you just find a nice flat spot to yeah. off the trail to throw down that night. Yeah. I would say that's probably the, the only drawback to that trail is you have to, again, I don't like structure. There's very specific <laughs> places you have to camp. You have to reserve those campsites. And so it's actually a super popular trail, obviously. So they have like a lottery. So you apply for a trail and you have to say, I'm going to be at this campsite at this date, this campsite at this date. And then um, you, uh, they, they choose based on a lottery, whether or not you get those. But the way that we did it is, uh, me and my friends, we don't plan. So we're just like, Hey, do you want to do the wonderland trail? Uh, Oh, we don't have a permit. What do we do? And so they hold aside a certain number of, uh, walk-up permits. Um, I think it's like 20% or something. So Mm -hmm. we showed up really early in the season when it was just starting to become passable. Um, I think it was late July, early June. And, um, we, went to the ranger station and got there super early and just said, Hey, we want to do a loop. Uh, what, what campsites can we get? And they're like, here are the ones that are available. And we're like, all right, well, let's, let's figure this out. And we basically picked the ones that allowed us to do it. And um, it worked out fine. We just showed up the day of and we were able to get the permit and we, we knocked it out. Wow. Very nice. Now, I understand that concept because uh, if you, if you've done or if you've heard of the Trans Catalina Trail on Catalina Island, it's the same kind of thing where you have, there are certain campsites and there are a certain number of campsites at each one of those locations and you have to sign up in advance uh, and they, they charge you per campsite. It's not like uh, the, um, the John Muir Trail or the right. PCT where there's you know, a $10 fee ahead of time and if you're, yeah, yeah. you're going to summit Whitney, there's another you know, 10 bucks or 15 bucks. This is like you know, 25 bucks a night at each one of those campsites, which can, it can add up. Yeah. 
All right. Hey, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's travel to a different continent. Let's go down south a little bit, South America and to Patagonia and talk about the Torres del Paine uh, hike. Um, when did, what year did you do that? And how much planning did you do in advance of that? And, and, and how, how long is that hike? Um, that hike, I'm not 100% sure. I think it's around 100 miles. Okay. I might be wrong. I, I remember seeing kilometers and miles and getting confused. All I know it was you're, you're supposed to do it in 10 days. There's like lots of resources about doing it. And so I just read the the guides and they're saying, this is, this is the track you're supposed to take. Like it's another one of those hikes where you uh, are supposed to hike at very specific spots. It's not like the uh, Wonderland Trail or the, um, I think you said the Catalina Trail. The Trans-Catalina Trail, yeah. Trans-Catalina Trail, where you have to, you know, book specific campsites. You do if you want to uh, stay in a refugio, they call them, which is mm-hmm. basically just like a lodge where you can, like, get a bed and all that stuff. And obviously... Oh, that's, that's glamping. That's glamping. I didn't want that. But I'm pretty sure, I mean, this is a while ago. It was back in 2016. So I'm pretty sure you are able to just get a permit and then you can camp uh, wherever you need to, and but you you camp in specific sites, but you don't have to reserve it ahead of time. So you uh, show up to the site and you can just camp there. Yeah, I knew we were going to be talking about this tonight, so I, I took a look at uh, at some information on the on the trail. I guess there's three different routes you can take. There's the what's called the W, which is about 50 miles, the O, which is 68 miles, or the Q, which they said is the same as the O with an additional day south. They didn't actually give mileage on it, so I. I it's probably, I would think, maybe closer to maybe 85 miles, maybe. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. Um, I think it was around there. Like, I, I seem to remember 90 to 100 miles, but I might be thinking of the Wonderland Trail. But, yeah, th- there are those three different ways to hike. The most popular route is the W, which hits the front side. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's where all the, like, main – photo ops are where all the refugios are and where all the day hikers are basically and it's a beautiful area but i think the if you're going to go down there i would almost prefer to do the backside um if you if you don't have 10 days and you only have enough time to do like the w or um i would almost prefer to to skip the w and go around the back because that's the more remote part where it's there's fewer people and um it's much more intimate and uh, you get some awesome views. You get to go up uh, John Gardner pass, I think it's called where you get to look down on this amazing view of uh, the glacier. I think it's called glacier gray and it's unlike anything I've ever seen. There's just this epic Gatorade blue glacier just cutting through the landscape and you can see it from the very, very top of this pass. And it's an amazing view. I highly recommend that better than the the views on the W where you go up to see like the Taurus and all that stuff. Um, so, so, the, yeah. so the Q, the Q route took you around the backside. Yeah. So the O route does the area. same. Okay. The, the Q has a, a, an approach trail to it, which is really cool too, because from the, the, you know, the part that sticks out from the Q, the approach trail, you get a really nice view of the whole um, Torres, which is, I don't know if it's a stratovolcano, it's some kind of mountain structure. I think it's different. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, it looks like it's something that was carved away by glaciers, but you get to see it from sort of uh, further away and you sort of get this postcard view 
of the whole thing and you sort of get this perspective, you walk up to the thing and then you're sort of right next to it for the rest of the time getting these close up views. But it's nice to have that contrast of the far away and the close up to sort of uh, give you the context. But yeah, the O route, again, I'm really into circumambulating or circumnavigating around things. And so I was definitely on board with that and took the, the, the full Q route that goes all the way around the front through the W, which is the more popular side and goes around the backside. Um, and then does a full loop. And how long did you, how long did you plan this trip? How much planning uh, went into this? Um, I didn't spend a crazy amount of time planning it. I basically just, there's lots of great resources on the internet these days. Like it's so easy to, to do these things. Like this, this hike gets done by, you know, tons and tons of people and it's super popular. So there's all the information you could ever want is there. You basically just Google, um, Torres del Paine hikes and all the information you can need is there. I, I'm pretty sure I planned it out probably like three or four months before, um, bought, bought my plane ticket and, um, just sort of read a couple blogs. I didn't like obsess over any of the details. I just sort of, uh, um, showed up and, uh, and did it. And what was your kit? What, 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 what gear did you take? So I, uh, this was the same gear that I started the PCT with. So I had the Z-Pax Arc right. Hall. I had uh, the Z-Pax Altiplex tent. I had um, a Catabatic Palisade quilt, which is probably my favorite piece of gear. It's an awesome sleeping bag. Highly recommend that. And um, I bought a gas stove there because I didn't want to deal with um, traveling with one. Mm-hmm. And so I had like a, a little... Um, like pocket rocket type stove and uh basically just like that those are the main things i had like uh you know my patagonia clothing and stuff like that but um, right you said you said 10 10 pound base weight i figured you for a cold soak guy no stove oh, no, at all no. just 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 soak just soak your ramen in a, in a cold bag of water oh no i i i like to have a nice warm meal if i was a cold soaker i'd probably have like a six pound base weight <laughs> At what time of the year did you go down there and what was, what was the, what were the temperatures that you encountered? So I went down there, I think in February. Um, so the, the seasons are flipped down there. Right. This is in the summer Southern hemisphere. So um, I think February is, is their summer. So mm-hmm. um, as far as the weather went, it was all over the place. Like the, the weather changes like on a dime down there. So most of the time the weather was great and sunny but windy, like, so it's almost always super windy down there. Like you have to make sure all of your stuff is tied down. Like there's stuff blowing away left and right. Um, but it's, it's not like, uh, it, depending on where you are, usually in the campsites, it's like more mellow, but like when you're going up over passes, the wind just starts whipping and like it, it, it gets like kind of scary. You feel like you're going to get blown off the mountain, but mostly it was sunny with wind, but then it would like, suddenly shift and then it would start raining or hail for a little bit but never for that long so it wasn't that like it wasn't super cold or super wet for any extended period of time but like the the weather was highly variable and were there um any was there any snow on the ground or in the passes um no i it was mostly just glaciers so there wasn't any like uh snow sitting around on the ground you could just see the the glaciers that that never melt Right. Is there, is there a lot of elevation change uh, in the, on that hike? Oh yeah. That, um, 
it definitely had some very steep passes. So lots of going up and down. Uh, it depends on which day of the hike, like there's parts that are more flat, like on the backside. Um, a lot of it is flat. You're just sort of cruising through these like swampy meadows, but then there's like a couple passes. There's John Gardner pass, super steep, um, pretty gnarly, but totally worth it when you get to the top. And then there's the hike up to the Taurus and there's another hike as part of the, uh, another climb as part of the w so there's some some pretty serious elevation gain and when we we I, when i opened the podcast i i talked a little bit about uh your your self-doubt uh, on this particular trip maybe about four days in struggling with uh your your conditioning and the the, the steepness and the 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 altitude uh, take us through that a little bit oh yeah so i i came into this hike thinking that i was uh, a pretty big deal and i was like totally more prepared than any of the other people that had showed up and um because you know i have all my ultralight gear and you know i've done my weekend trips before so i showed up thinking like oh this is going to be totally easy i'm going to show all these guys what's up and um like I was pretty underprepared in terms of my physical preparedness. Like I got my butt kicked like the, by day four, there's like a really, really long day, like hiking the recommended way. You're supposed to wake up super early uh, before the sunrise and then hike up to the, the, one of the steepest parts up to the, the major viewpoint, the Torres where you see these beautiful spires and then you watch the sunrise over them and you get your, you know, your beautiful picture for Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you hike all the way down and then back around to the backside. And it's the longest day. Um, I think it's something like 20 miles. And at the time I was not in particularly good shape and I just hobbled into camp at the end and just barely made it in where like I felt like I could barely make my legs keep moving and just collapsed um and so I was I I was pretty pretty humbled by that whole experience but surprisingly like after that day things are pretty mellow like I said on the backside, it's relatively flat so I had time to recover and um made it through to the end and I was actually super impressed that the other people I was hiking with who had way heavier packs like way less nutritious food with them because they just had whatever they could find at the grocery store. Uh -huh. And some of them didn't bring enough food and just had super heavy gear that they'd rented and they were right there with me and they had never gone backpacking before and they, they were able to push through it. So I was uh, pretty impressed by the, the random people that I you know ended up hiking with. I can totally empathize. I think I, on every single one of my hikes, my body has uh, come to a point during the hike and said to, said to me, you know, what are we doing out here? And, uh, we've slept on it and got up the next morning. And, and once that determination is made, we're going to keep going. It just kind of falls into line and things slowly get better. So I think yeah. uh, it's a common experience. Yeah. It's crazy how if you wake up on the trail and you have to get up and keep moving, you're able to, once your body warms up, you're like, Oh, there's no way I'm going to be able to hike today. But you know, since you're out there, you have to. And then once you do it, you figure out that you can, but as soon as you get home, even if like, you know, you go home after two days or after and you, instead of, you know, continuing on for five days, you get home and you're just completely, you feel like you're incapacitated. You're like, Oh, there's no way I could have done more, but the, your body is able to go a lot further than you think it can, as long as you get out there and force it to. Yeah, I think I'm going to call that path of least resistance. If you're out there in the middle of nowhere, there is no path of least resistance and you just have to do what you have to do. And so you do, yep. your body just has to conform and, and fall in line. But yep. if you're at the end of a trip 
or if you're at home, yeah, yeah. yeah I totally agree. It's just like, okay, I'm just sitting here. I'm, I'm sitting on the couch or I'm, yep. I'm uh, almost to the bus stop to, to get the heck out of here and your body starts breaking down. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. As soon as you know you can give up and shut down, your body just gives up. Yeah. Such a mental game. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, hiking, running, I mean, all of that, it, it just, it, it's in your head. You just got to have the right mindset. Exactly. All right, so uh, we talked about the PCT, the Wonderland Trail, Torres del Paine. What's your favorite of those three? Ooh, I mean, nothing competes with the PCT. It's like the problem with hiking the PCT is you only ever want to hike the PCT after that. Everything else just seems like it's not going to be as cool. It's the it's the perfect trail. It It covers so many different interesting environments and biomes and has amazing views the whole time. Like there's very few places where it's not like, I mean, I haven't hiked the AT, but I hear, you know, green tunnel. There's not as many views. Whereas the PCT very open, you can see for miles in every direction. The trail is super well-maintained, well-graded, you know, there's nice switchbacks. You're not just like doing gnarly um, scrambles, which is not something I'm super excited about. Um, and it, it takes you across uh, the entire country, you know, in this sort of epic journey all the way across. And you can, even if you're not through hiking, you can find so many different interesting places along the trail to do a nice section. And it has all the variety you could ever need. Nice. Well said. Well said. So let's, uh, let's talk about at the end of a hike. Um, you're out there for 171 days, let's say, for your, your, uh, your PCT hike. How difficult is it getting back into the routine of, let's just call it city life, life back yeah. in civilization with, with people and timelines and got to be somewhere and do something? Uh, what, what, uh, what's the mental battle like getting back into, into civilization? It, it is a heinous battle. I, I will say it's probably the most challenging thing I've ever done was coming back after I finished the PCT and figuring out what to do with myself, like doing the trail itself. Like that was easy. That was something I was super excited about and super motivated about. And it had, you know, it's challenges, you know, there's physical challenges, there's mental challenges, but the whole time you want to be out there, you're motivated to be there. You're excited to be there. I never had any points on the trail where I was like actually considering quitting. There were days where I was like, you know, feeling kind of burned out, but I was always like, I'm going, I'm having a great time. I'm out here to, uh, to enjoy myself. And this is where I want to be. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you get to the end and you finish, you, you've spent so much time with this absolute clarity of purpose, knowing exactly what you want to do and having a concrete goal and knowing how to make progress towards that goal every day. All you got to do is get up and walk and you're making progress. And as soon as you run out of that, you just feel lost. You feel like you're just blowing in the wind. You're like, I don't know what to do with myself. Like I have all of this energy that I don't know what to do with anymore because I'm supposed to go back to the quote real world and uh, live in this world of abstraction, you know, chasing all of these, um, you know, symbolic goals and sort of doing things that involve sitting at computers and, you know, just sort of shutting yourself out from that, beautiful open and free world that you were in before mm-hmm. and it, the, the people call it post-trail depression because yeah. you know you go from this sort of peak experience where you're getting all these endorphins from exercising and going back to sort of this 
this world that you had abandoned and there's a reason that you abandoned it, right? Like you, you left it to in search of something. And if you, if you found it out there, it's really hard to sort of let go of it and, and go back to, to living in the city and, and having all of these sort of, they feel like more superficial experiences because when you're out there, you're running into people every day that are doing the same thing you are. They're idealist and they want to talk to you. They want to talk about what's coming up on the trail ahead, what they saw behind. And you feel like you're in this sort of tight knit community of all these people that are, you know, have shared the same values and ideals you have, and they don't care about how they look. They care about having a good time and uh, you know, being integrated with nature. And then you go into the city and people are just walking past you without making eye contact. They're all super concerned about the way they look and uh, they just have a very different mindset and they don't have that sense of community. And um, it's kind of shocking and really like uh, it's somewhat traumatic to sort of go through that and to, to try to rebuild that sense of purpose that you sort of left out on the trail. Yeah. And so typically how long, how long did, well, how, after the PCT trip, how long did it take you to kind of overcome that, that funk of reintegrating? Well, I'm still overcoming it. You know, it's, it's a constant struggle really. Like, uh, but I basically, I was pretty much depressed for about three months, I would say. And I, I'm, it's not, you know, I, I don't want to, um, pretend that uh, I can understand with people who have full, uh, you know, depression, but it was, it was really difficult. I was living with my parents and, um, I was basically had to figure out if I was going to decide to go back in to a job like the one I had before the trail, which I was not happy with. I Mm -hmm. didn't like sitting at a desk all day. And, um, I basically had to either, I had to figure out how to make money because I could either, you know, decide to live a very minimalist life and sort of go try to live out of a van and work seasonal jobs and sort of accept that lifestyle, which I very seriously consider. And I think that's an admirable way to live. And I think about, you know, I, I definitely question my decision not to live that life all the time, but in the end, I'm, I decided I've invested a lot of time and energy into uh, getting a degree and, uh, getting a career established so that I can have money so that I can travel to places and do fun things and I can pursue my hobbies. I can make music. I can buy instruments. I can um, maybe hopefully one day have a family and support them. So I, these are all things that I had been thinking about on the trail. Like, you know, what do I want out of life? What's important to me? Um, And so when I came back, I sort of had to decide, okay, I'm going to go back to this, uh, having a career and it's good. There's going to be parts about it that suck. Uh, but I, I basically have a new attitude that I learned from the trail. I learned how to push through difficult things and to get the things that I care about. And so I basically told myself like, it's not going to be the same as before, uh, where I was sort of unhappy with my job. I'm going to be able to go back in, get, get a job again and make sure that I'm seeing it through the lens of this is enabling me to do the things that I want with my life. And so sort of have that mindset. And so after a few months, I got in contact um, with uh, my former boss at the previous company and she had actually started her own company. She, she left before I got fired from that last to start her own company. And um, she hired me back on 
ed at her new place and I was an early employee. That's where I am now, this place mm-hmm. called Defiant Crowd. And I've been there for quite a long time now for almost three years. And I was one of the first 20 employees. Now we have 200 something employees. And so it was, um, it's been sort of nice to like, at first it was rough, but like having a going from having no job and being unemployed and trying to figure out like the, the hardest part was, was the uh, job search really. Once mm-hmm. I had a job, I sort of fell into it. I was like, okay, I have something to channel this energy into. I can use the skills I learned on the PCT to sort of cope with having this real job and make sure that I'm cultivating things that I care about, that sense of community, staying in contact with people from the trail that, you know, share my values and, um, you know, using the the money I save to, to go hiking, to fly out and hang out with these people and to sort of invest in, in the things that I care about and sort of having that mindset of like, okay, I need to have a sense of purpose and let's make sure I'm always reminding myself of why I'm doing what I'm doing. And so once I got a job and was able to sort of see it through that lens, um, I've been doing much better, much happier overall. Wow. The, the trail is truly transformational. I mean, look at the impact it had on you and what you're able to take away from the trail and apply to your, to your, uh, your city life. It's just incredible. Yeah, it, it really is profound. It, it taught me, so much like the, I think the, the main takeaway for me that it taught me is to just believe in myself that I can do anything that I really put my mind to. It's cliche, but it's true. You know, if you have the right mindset, you can stick through anything. And um, as long as you apply that skill, you're going to, you're going to be happy. Yeah. I think that is obvious, especially for uh, the long trails, like the PCT. I mean, if you can hike 2,400 miles, 2,600 miles, you, what can't you do? I mean, that's, that's, uh, that is, uh, an incredible feat. Yeah. It's such a valuable psychological support to have that in the back of your mind to know, like, I know how to live out of a backpack and I do this crazy thing that most people I meet will never understand, you know, what I went through and the, what that beautiful challenging experience was, but I know that I can do that. I can live that very simple life and I can go through all those challenges and get past them. And like any, any, you know, normal problem I encounter in the city just seems silly in that context. You know, it just gives you that, that perspective to know that to give you confidence in yourself. Yep. All right. Uh, what, what is the next big adventure for steel and Cora? So um, I'm always looking for fun uh, vacation hikes to do. Um, and so I was looking at the, um, Sierra high route for my next big adventure, um, which is about a 200 mile route through the Sierras that's sort of near the John Muir trail, but it's largely, um, off route navigation. And so me and my buddy were planning to do that this year, getting, uh, super stoked about it. But then um, he had some personal stuff crop up and looks like we're going to have to delay it until next year. So I've sort of been, um, you know, flapping in the wind again without a sense of purpose, not knowing what uh, next big adventure to look towards. But I, it sounds like what I'm going to do now is go to Colorado and do um, a section of the Colorado Trail, the Collegiate West, okay. with uh, another one of my buddies, GoPro. Um, this is just an idea that I literally heard about um, two days ago. So uh, 
we'll see if it pans out, but that's my current plan is to go do a section of the Colorado trail. I'll probably have to leave the dog behind for that one because I, uh, the logistics of traveling to Colorado with the dog right now and the amount of like with on a plane, I think would just be too difficult and driving there would take too long. So she's probably going to sit that one out. But then after that, I'm looking at doing another week long hike that I can bring the dog on around here and something uh, I'm looking at right now is another circumambulation around um, Glacier Peak, um, which is right in the heart of my favorite section of the PCT. There's Glacier Peak Wilderness, which is north of Stevens Pass. And so there's um, a bunch of trails around there, and um, there's a loop you can create that goes around Glacier Peak, which is about 100 miles and so um, it's not a super popular thing. Like I haven't seen very many people do it. Mostly I, I saw like an ultra runner did it. And obviously that's not the approach I would take. But um, yeah, I'm sort of trying to figure out if that's possible. That's, that's the next thing I'm looking at is uh, a glacier peak circumambulation. Okay. Hey, I'm thinking about doing a, an episode just on interviews from the trail. And so if you, if you wouldn't mind, uh, take something you can record on, whether it be your iPhone or or some other device and just interview a few people, including GoPro. Love to hear from GoPro. Yeah. Uh, anybody else you run into on the, on the, on your trails. Um, and we can put something together. We do an episode, just, uh, you know, kind of thoughts from the trail and people's experiences. That, that'd be pretty cool. Absolutely. I always bring a camera with me. So um, yeah, I can, I can record on that thing. All right. Very good. Hey, do you have any pictures you can, you can share with me that we can post to social media to, to kind of uh, share your experiences on these trips? Yeah. Um, I mean, you can, I have a bunch of pictures on my Instagram, but you probably want higher resolution versions of those, but I would think that'd be the, the main place to find pictures of me and Cora. Um, so I, I can look through there and send you some of them. Okay. That'd be great. That'd be great. Hey, we're at that point of the episode. It is time for the pro tip inside of the week. What have you got for us, Steel? Hmm. Okay. So, Let's see. Pro tip inside of the week. I have to admit, I, I stopped thinking about that, but <laughs> um, I, I'd say um, don't be afraid to take your time, you know, um, in general, like, you know, people get very concerned with crushing miles and doing them right now. But, um, you know, and there, a lot of people I hike with are like, we have to get to camp by 6 p.m. And then they end up sitting in camp and just, you know, waiting around. I like to enjoy my time, ramble, and, uh, you know, worry about the destination later. And that applies, I think overall, that's a good strategy for hiking is to, you know, not rush through it. And especially like, you know, night hiking is is a good example of that. Oh, I forgot to get back to night hiking. I was going to ask you about night hiking. That's right. Yeah. But I mean, I I guess my, my tip is, give night hiking a chance. A lot of people get freaked out by night hiking. It's just an example of, you know, hike when it feels good to hike, when you have the energy to, when the conditions are right. If it's not, then don't just sit and hang out, you know, but like when things cool off at night, it's a great time to get in miles. So go do it. You know, when the conditions are right, get out there and do it. Just make sure you've got a flashlight with good battery. And um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's the, it's the right way to do it. Yeah, I, I do. I, I run a lot. And so I've done a lot of runs uh, 
early in the morning before it's light and I've done some, some night running as well. And it's a, it's a very different experience. And it's, I, to me, it's, it's even, it's more enjoyable. I know you don't want to miss the sights when you're on a hike and I, I appreciate your tip. You know, you want to take your time and enjoy it out there. You didn't come out there to stare at the ground and, and, and do, do 40 mile days or 35 mile days uh, and, and not see and appreciate everything. Um, yeah. How much are you able to see on the night hike and, um, you, it sounds like you had a pretty good experience with that. Yeah. So I will say that the, there's a couple drawbacks. First of all, there's a lot less people. So when I was hiking through the desert, um, it was a much more solitary experience for me as a result of that, because I ended up doing night hiking, sort of hiking at a pace that was the dog's pace. And so um, I would meet lots of cool people, but then they'd be you know off ahead on the trail or I wouldn't meet night cool people because I was hiking at night, which was fine because I ended up meeting people that hiked at my pace eventually, um, the, the lazy fucks. But anyway, the, the night hiking, the drawback is not as many people, but that can also be a positive. Sometimes you don't mm-hmm. want to be around people. Sometimes you want to be alone. So hiking at night, great time to do that. I walk my dog at night all the time because that's when I can think because there aren't all these other people, you know, coming out to mm-hmm. me to try to play with my dog. Right. Um, so the, and as far as the views go, yeah, you do miss out on the views. Um, but if you're hiking the PCT, there's plenty of views, you know, and you, you don't spend the entire night hiking. You know, you can uh, still see, you still hike in the evening or hike in the morning and you get plenty of great views then. And the trail looks completely different at night. Like you can hike under the moonlight and you can still see some great views under moonlight and you get to see this whole different world that comes alive at night that you wouldn't see otherwise. You know, you can see, you know, the little eight green eyes of spiders everywhere. Um, and you can hear lots of different sounds and, um, you get to experience this sort of, uh, alternate view of the PCT that you wouldn't see otherwise. So I think it's worth checking out. All right. Very good. Uh, so there you have it. That's it. Episode 26 is in the books. I hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Steele, and I want to thank him for joining us this week. Steele, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media, and where can they find updates on your, your next adventures? So uh, I'm at steele.carter. That's S-T-E-E-L-E dot C-A-R-T-E-R. Um, that's generally where I post all my pictures of my cool hikes. Um, I don't really advertise where I'm going to be going to hike, but if, if there are enough people that are interested, maybe I could start a blog. Um, so we'll see if, if, if you want to hear where I'm going, then send me a message and, and maybe if there are people interested in that, I can start doing that. All right. Thank you very much. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have any comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at John at gmail.com. And also, don't forget to give us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts. If you're enjoying the pod, give us a review. If you are not enjoying the podcast, uh, then just keep that to yourself. That is a wrap from the John Freaking Muir Studio. Any final thoughts, Steele? Um, go out there and hike. If you're thinking about not hiking, think again. All right. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember, the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if your dog doesn't want to walk and you have to carry her into camp. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck.